Welcome to Fit to Be Radio, where we bring you all things fitness, core, and diastases recti related. While we're having this little chat, we hope you'll shuffle into your shoes, grab your water, and take us along for a walk while we talk. Or maybe you're listening as you make dinner or drive or do dishes. Hey, you can always work out with us later on fittobe.com, where we have over 200 gorgeous, family-friendly, tummy-safe exercise videos ready for you to stream. Now let's get this show on the road. You guys ready? Yes. Yep. All right. Born ready. Born ready. I love that. I, I love your first one, though, when you're like, I wish I could just say all those things. I know. <laughs> that is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Fit to Be Radio. My name is Chris Banky. I'll be your host today. I've got with us Beth Learn. She's the CEO and founder of Fit to Be Studio. We also have with us Grania Donnelly. She is um, a physio. She's got a lot of experience in diastases and a lot of overall experience in the research space and several things in the UK. So we're super excited to talk to her today. Um, Grania, thank you for joining us. And um, staying late right it's early here but it's late there um to hang out with us we really appreciate that um where are you coming to us from though i kind of alluded to it a little bit but where are you at in the world so hi everybody um i'm Gronia, as i've been introduced and um, i'm coming from northern ireland so we're actually part of the uk but mm-hmm. i'm very close to the border of ireland so yes ireland uk that's all me Awesome. Um, and I'm from a very rural place called County Fermanagh. Wait, can you say that again? You broke up a little bit. I'm from a really rural place in Northern Ireland called County Fermanagh. Oh, fantastic. So how close <laughs> is it to the coastline? Very close on the coast? One hour, yeah. One hour. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, so is it currently, uh, so it's nighttime there. Um, and. Uh, and how was the summer? We're headed into fall, but how was the summer for you guys? Oh, we are heading, we're in fall. We're in thick into fall at the minute. The summer was, our weather is nothing like you have. We have a lot of rain and a lot of cold weather with one or two days of sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We get like six weeks where I'm at. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. I'm well jealous. But the rest of it's rainy. Yeah. Yeah, so how, how do you like, have you been there your whole life? Yeah, so I'm born and bred here. Um, uh, I've always lived in County Fermanagh, actually. And um, other than travel a few places outside of Northern Ireland, I'm very much, very much a wee small Irish girl. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, was fortunate enough to travel to Ireland with my wife about 10 years ago. And it is one of the coolest places I've ever been. Um, it is very much like um, Oregon, where we're from. It rains constantly mm-hmm. here, and it's so green and beautiful. And um, people always think of it as a negative thing, even we do. But it's just so green and beautiful that it's it's you know it's worth mm-hmm. it actually because it's so it's yeah. so beautiful there. But I moved away mm-hmm. from that to Central Oregon. And it's a lot sunnier here, but it's still close to the rainy part. And that's where Beth lives. She lives in the rainy part. And we live oh, in the I do. So that's nice. I live um, just a couple hours uh, south and west from where they filmed the Twilight movies, if that tells you anything. Yeah. So it's like the vampire territory. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Cool. I have to admit that. That's funny. <laughs> that's how little sun we get 
So anyway, um, so uh, thank you for, uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Um, so you are an expert in dioceses and I'd love to just hear, we, we have a lot of diocese experts um, on the podcast and they each have their own angle and understanding. They each have, kind of mm-hmm. have their own story, how they, how this became important to them. So can you give us maybe a little bit of background, um, how you got into the space, how you found fit to be just s- some of that stuff to kind of set the context for us. Okay. Yeah. So as a physiotherapist, when I first started as a junior physiotherapist, we rotated around different specialities of physiotherapy. And um, I'm not sure if that happens in the States, but, you know, orthopedics, mm-hmm. neurology, different mm-hmm. areas. And I was actually sent against my will to the maternity hospital to do a pelvic health rotation. And I went <laughs> against my will. At that stage, that was so uncool. I wanted to be a sports physio and run out in pitches. So yeah. I tried to swap with everybody and nobody would swap. <laughs> and I went and I loved it. And that changed my whole direction for my career because mm. I realized wow. you can help these ladies so much. So that was how I got into it by accident. And at that stage, that was back eight or nine years ago, there was lots of ladies coming in with pregnancy-related pelvic pain. And maybe I was following them up afterwards as well. And they all seem to have this tummy gap or separation. But when we asked about it, there wasn't that much known about it. It wasn't really accepted within the medical model. And this didn't sit well with me. Um, I knew it wasn't just cosmetic. I knew there was functional implications. So I started to look into it more and more myself. Now, with that, at that stage, if we skip back that many years, I stumbled across Beth learn and fit to be. How many years are you going, Beth? Um, so 2010, October is when we launched. So we're right yeah. on eight years. Well, I must have found you right at the beginning then because you were mm-hmm. one of very few people at that stage who was putting good information out there for people with diagnosis that was appropriate and it was, get, I suppose, educating them and showing them how to access health. So I'm totally fangirling right now because I followed you the whole time. So I'm delighted to be Thank here. You. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I um so I looked into it and I've been around I've been around it all basically with the access. When yeah. I first started looking as well as Beth, I found Julie Tupler also from the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going across and training with Julie back so many years ago. And yeah, because she was one of the that, pioneers. Yeah. Oh yeah, she put she was the one of the few people like I said coming up when you Google diastasis. So she was putting information out there when no one else seemed to be and I mm-hmm. accessed this and I wanted to know more. And after working with Julie for two years, I then went on and I suppose looked into it more as a physiotherapist and that background and I trained with Dan Lee, another big name in the diastasis world. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. I really want to go to one of Diane Lee's events. I, they're never yeah. the right time for me. Mm. Oh, I, I definitely recommend, because we'll come on and talk a bit more about research later, but she, yeah. her research has transformed how we think about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But I trained with Dan, and I have, I suppose, through my clinical practice, treated so many people with diastasis, and over the years, refined my skills. And now I'm hoping to be involved at the end of my master's in this time next year, I'll be hopefully doing a research project involving diastasis. So that's exciting. So cool. Let me know how I can help. 
Yay, I will. So, so you touched on it a little bit, but um, I would like to talk about some of the research that's out there a little bit because it's getting mm-hmm. better for sure. Um, but I know when we started uh, really getting into it on our side, um, one of the things that Beth came to me and said a lot, like, like a lot, a lot is no one's talking about this. No one's talking about this. No one's talking about this. And I, you know, as kind of the business side, I, I was like, awesome. That means we can get out there and be first. But then I was also like, wait a minute. <laughs> if no one's talking about it, is it really an issue? No, it is. It is. But is it really? Um, so, uh, so there's a gap in research. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And also what is starting to come out and what, what are we starting to see? What are people finding? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a really good question because I think we really need to consider the research or lack thereof that's out there. <laughs> there needs to be a lot more research in this area, which I'm glad to hear Beth that you've interest in it. I've interest in it. So hopefully the yeah. coming decades will bring a lot. But First of all, if we look about, you've touched on a really good thing about whether this is an issue if no one's talking about it. Unfortunately, in the medical world, it's very much recognized as a cosmetic issue with even some of the surgical publications have done, there's a 2017 literature review um, in terms of the surgical approaches, which has identified that physiotherapy didn't really demonstrate any, I suppose, positive um, input in terms of conservative management, which is disappointing. Um, So I think we need to step up and do a lot more. But if we talk about the research in terms of what is the access, how is it defined, how is it tested, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of debate ongoing. Now, I Mm -hmm. myself welcomed the research by Mota et al. in 2015, I think it was, that um, identified Mm -hmm. that 100% of women at gestation 35 weeks are going to have some degree of separation because I think that's completely right. normal. I think some separation mm-hmm. is absolutely appropriate and normal. Yeah, and the abs are designed to stretch. Yep, yeah, I think that's fine. So I think that's really important to highlight so that we can decrease fear to all the listeners because mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, I don't think we need to look at it and think any sort of gap is an issue. I think it's only an issue if it doesn't naturally resolve or if it causes functional implications after pregnancy. But what about in terms of how we define adapts? If you look at different research papers, they all define adapts in different ways, whether it's two finger widths, whether yeah. it's centimeters. Right. Like, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. That's There's not issue much standardization. Is that, yeah, is that no. starting to become standardized? I mean, even if the medical community is not, you know, as physio, as personal trainer, are are you guys starting to standardize on what is healthy, what's not healthy? Or is it just all over the place? Well, the most commonly cited uh, publication would probably be Beer et al. 2009, which they um, I suppose define the uh, indirectly distance normal, anything up to 15 millimeters at the ziphoid, anything up to 22 millimeters at three centimeters above the umbilicus, and I can't remember the value below it, but... Um, so it's, it's, like that can be significant enough to think that that's some degree of normality. However, we have to consider developments in the research. I touched on Diane Lee earlier, Beth, and her research really transformed how we think about the mm-hmm. because yep. it's tough to focus. It's not just about the gap. 
you know, we need to start, think beyond the gap. Um, and she identified in her research that we need to think about the depth of the connective tissue mm-hmm. and also the function yep. across that abdominal wall. That brings difficulties in itself because how do we standardize assessment for that? That's really difficult yeah. as physios and as fitness professionals. What's your thoughts? Well, um, a lot of the mentoring that I did originally was under Kelly at the tummy team. And I like that she uses fingers most of the time um, because the average fingers are similar. Yes, there are some people that have larger fingers. Um, But, you know, she talks about how, you know, if you feel like the gap is around like the space between two knuckles and you can't push into it, that's like a one in a shallow, you're fine. You know, postpartum, we consider that closed. Um, and then she's like, if you can sink up to a knuckle, like she calls that medium, you know, because you can kind of dip in. So if you can get down to your first knuckle um, and, and there's still some resistance, but you can kind of sink down, that's, you know, that's, you're, you're losing some, some tensegrity and you're starting to get into that depth. And then she's like, if you can drop down to a couple knuckles or you're feeling a lot of pulsing and you're feeling your body digesting food, you're feeling a backbone, which I have felt a few backbones. Wow. I mean, not directly, but you can, you can feel the hard structure. Um, there was a woman who had had twins. She had, I can get eight fingers in her belly wow, and wow. feel her rectus abs hit my pinky fingers as she lifted her head off the ground. Um, and she looks thin. She did not have a descended stomach. She looked fine. And she's like, everybody thinks I'm great. They're like, you're beautiful. You're fine. What's wrong? And she's like, I don't feel fine. I feel like everything is falling out of me. I wobble when I walk. I feel like I'm walking on a ship all the time. So I want to stop right there for a second. I want to stop right there for a second. So a lot of times what is out there, and I know you guys are into this a lot more, so maybe you don't see this so much, but what I hear is, a lot of people say, well, it's not really affect, it doesn't really affect you that much. But so Beth, no, no. someone with like no. what you saw there, like what mm-hmm. was she, what effect did that have on her actual life? And I'm not talking about she, like bathing suit effect. I'm talking about like living. No, no because bathing suit wise, she looked great. She was petite, thin, elegant, gorgeous. Um, but her quality of life, like I said, she said, I feel like I'm walking on a ship in an ocean like her she felt unsteady and she's like I don't like walking walking hurts I my back aches all the time I can't sleep um she's like I am always constipated um but she didn't have any of the bloating um but those were her side effects of that chronic functional core weakness and and diastases and so like we do need standardization but we all recognize that when you get past around the two and a half, three fingers, there's a tipping point. So we can sit here and go, oh, 2.5 or 2.2 centimeters or, you know, but we all know, all of us working in the trenches of these bellies, there's this, um, you get to this certain width and then you get past that, that single knuckle depth and you got problems. Mm. There's always other symptoms of core weakness that then start oh, yeah. to accompany that diastasis. Right. Mm-hmm. And then of course the, you the talk- at the gym says, Oh, you need to start doing some crunches and build that up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, your belly's sticking out. We know how to fix that. Let's do planks and crunches. <laughs> Let me toss a medicine ball at you. Oh, I'll toss a medicine ball at you while you do sit ups. 
Oh, it's awful, so it is. It's really, really bad. And people are at the liberty of the professionals that they're in with. Sorry, I'm taking the absolute cough from here. You got the neck, though. I bet, I bet you used the neck there. <laughs> You're right, I did. Sorry. I'm going to tell them what the neck is while you keep coughing. The neck <laughs> is when you do a pre engagement and a pre lift of the pelvic floor before you cough or sneeze, right? <laughs> so that little pause you saw, she's like, I'm going to cough. <laughs> you said it. That's right. No, but it's called the neck. Talk about the functional aspect of it. There was, which I really welcome, there was a study brought out only this year and published by Hilladal, 2018, which, for, which finally has investigated the functional impact of the this and not just mm -hmm. focuses on the gap. So they found that the ladies who had diastasis had um, reduced the ability to do a sit-up action, which makes sense, mm -hmm. but also their rotational torque, so their rotational trunk function was impacted. So I find this really interesting because we know it affects the function, but until recently we haven't had much in the literature to back this up, to take to our medical community, to highlight that this is a, a functional issue and it isn't just cosmetic. Yeah. Well, I got a bone to pick with people too that, um, and I know this is how it's done, but as a fitness professional, you know, and my degree is in fitness program management and pre-physical therapy. Those are the things I studied the most in college. And, but I, I didn't ever get the physical therapy degree and I, and I'm not signed up with the APTA and, and all those. And so I'm restricted on what I can view. So mm -hmm. I, I can't, I can't get in. And one time I did find that amazing study and I can't remember who did it, but it was like looking at how the transverse abdominis affects low back pain and the order of activation so pelvic floor transverse abs and the rest and, and it looked at when that order is mixed up how it affects low back pain and I posted it because I found it and I was like oh, this is great I'm gonna post this I got so much hate mail from other people like physical therapists saying you can't post that that's not supposed to be public and I'm like if it's not supposed to be public why did I find it well you weren't supposed to find it you don't have clearance you're not a physical therapist you shouldn't be sharing that that's for personal use only and I'm going what that's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and I, I then I was I'm not sure what that the advantage of afraid. that is, actually. It's a little Yeah. Weird. Well, and, and I feel like there's, there's also, you know, I'm part of this women's physio group, and I, I think you're in the same group on Facebook. I got added to it as a, as a courtesy nod for the work I do, um, and, and Michelle helps head it up, but there's so many people in there. Not Michelle, not you. Um, lots of lovely people, but there are some people, I swear they're just in it like to hoard their blocks. Like, I'm going to build these blocks. We're going to play with you. These are my blocks. I'm not sharing these blocks. Mm -hmm. And I have it right, and all the rest of you have it wrong. Mm -hmm. And you're going, okay, well, can you educate? No, I'm not sharing. Um, and you get like, that Do you want to educate people, or do you want to hoard? What, what do you, what, why are you here? That's the point. I think that people need to be, we're all in this, and I think if you're in it for the right reason, you're in it for the good of helping your clients' space as yeah. well. So I think if the ethos is there, we're all in it together. We all do better if we work together. So that's mm -hmm. where I'm at, and that's where most people genuinely are at, but you will always get right. people who are not going to play ball like us, which is unfortunate. Uh, I, I don't understand people who don't want to play ball. Playing ball is fun. 
<laughs> healthy but good exercise I was, as well as that just to take it back when I'm talking about dysfunction I have to in one way laugh when I'm told by the medical community particularly surgeons so I contacted I was speaking at our UK conference there a couple of weeks ago and why Andre asked and when I was preparing for it I wanted to delve into what's happening on the surgical front for diastasis one just want to clear, clarify that I'm so passionate about the conservative management of it, and that's mm-hmm. my, I want everyone to be managed conservatively. Yeah. But I'm realistic to know that there'll be limitations to that in the same way as I can't manage yeah. every gynae condition I treat. Some people will have to go into surgery. So I wanted to know what was happening. And with this in mind, I contacted several plastic surgeons throughout the UK and Ireland to ask them a series of questions from whether they consider this condition to be functional or just cosmetic what approach they take, is physio involved in this, and I got back, I mean, such varying degrees of answers, it was, it, my jaw dropped on the floor with some of the answers, which is quite eye-opening to me, so I find 50% said it was just cosmetic, which I thought, right, okay, on that point, within their surgical publications, they have a, there's a study to do with abdominoplasty improved, it's been shown to improve uh, stress urinary incontinence and low back pain so after as soon as they did they had a cohort of their own and um, surgical candidates and once they were they completed surgery their urinary incontinence improved mm. and their low back pain improved which is massive mm. just highlighted the functional implications yeah but, you know what I mean so even within their own body of evidence they're demonstrating that there's functional components to this condition yes so let's let's talk about that but um, <laughs> but the other things that they highlighted was what was really, really, really so scary to me was I asked what is the recovery time after the surgery, and I got the variation was anything from eight weeks. So one consultant told me eight weeks. I asked, could they go back to CrossFit at eight weeks? Yes. How scary is mm-hmm. that? Yes. The other extreme was that up to a year post uh, post op, and I thought that's more realistic if we consider our gynae surgeries and the rehab after them. You're talking at least six months, so like, of course, abdominoplasty and erectile glycation is going to involve much more. It's invasive. It's a very invasive surgery. Um, Brianna Battles, who we've had on our podcast here, she has been doing some research on on surgery, and she's considering having surgery herself. Um, she's made a lot of progress in narrowing her gap after her um, two births that she's had, uh, but she feels that she still may need surgery, and I'm hoping to get her on our show to discuss that, but she went and, and videoed and took pictures of a diastasis recti repair with a surgeon, and I mean, they take uh, apart your abs. I mean, you are laid open. And I then am. they put everything back together. The recovery and, and is long. So like you're not moving. You're it sitting is. in this chair stationary for like two weeks. Yeah. So, and they don't always I, include physical therapy, do they, Grania? No. So 50%, um, the same 50% who thought it was purely cosmetic, replied to me to say that no, physiotherapy has no place in either the conservative or the pre- or post-operative management, which was so frustrating to me because I know what we can do. And I was like, you know, like we, I'm seeing these patients, do you know what I mean? So yeah. it, that I think yeah. we have a lot to do to, to step up, basically. I think we need to change views. We need to shout louder. We need to show what we can do. We need to work together and have a common voice. 
So yeah. do, you, do you, can either I of agree. you to why they would feel like there's no place? Because just, um, just going through the surgery and then the recovery period, you, you, if nothing else, you have atrophy issues where you're just not yeah. even moving. So even if they, even if there was no other effect, which is absurd to even say that, but let's say there wasn't, just sitting around could benefit from some kind of th- physical therapy. Yeah. So I, what is there? Is there a reason? Is it just ignorant? I mean, what? It doesn't make. <sighs> I think I, I think our profession is undervalued. I think it's severely undervalued, and sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's a skewed outlook because they don't see the patients that we see and get better. Do you know what I mean? They're not coming mm-hmm. to their clinic because they don't, need, yeah. you know, so I think that they don't, they don't always get what we can offer. But you're up here, you hit it on, I did meet with some great surgeons and one surgeon, and I spent a morning with a Dr. Srenton in, the, in London, actually, he invited me over to spend a morning with him. And he did value physiotherapy and did value pre and post um, rehab. And he was amazing. And he even spoke about with the asthesis, it's not just about the linear alba stretching. You have to think that if, if that person has had a pendular abdomen, all the lateral abdominal wall muscles are going to stretch too. They're on a stretch because they've, everything has just been pendular. So if they've been stretched yeah. for a long period of time, there's a lot of re-education and rehab that needs to occur at them as well as the midline. Yeah, and I think they're, you know, they're, like you said and alluded to, they're thinking they fixed it, which uh, I had a great surgeon, OBGYN surgeon, delivered both my kids. He is an amazing surgeon. That came in really handy when he was stitching me up after my third degree tear with my son. Okay, wonderful man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well done, him. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know that he refers women to physical therapy now. He wasn't back then. Okay. So when I say this, I'm not referring to all surgeons. Isn't it great how we have to make all these disclaimers these days? Yes. But a lot of them have this, this um, superhero, I'm wearing a cape, I'm going to fly in and fix this. And it's done. And that's Hello. not accurate. It, I mean, if you're only looking at medicating and stitching, and that, that then fixes it, um, you're not looking at the physiology and the repair work and the scar tissue and all the things that come into play after that. I mean, C-sections happen by the thousands every day, right, around the world. It's an amazing thing. But uh, I, in my experience, women that have had C-section tend to have wider gaps. Um, I, I went and talked to a group of um, women in an ICANN group, International Cesarean Awareness Network. I think is what that stands for, right? And so all the women in that room had had cesareans. And just the week before, I had been to a group of women where it was kind of a mixed bag, mostly vaginal deliveries. Because I always ask, what kind of delivery did you have? And it was like, whereas the group before had been threes and fours, you know, when I was feeling their gaps, this group with the cesareans was like fours to eights across the board. And they were all, you know, a similar stage of motherhood, toddlers, preschoolers. And it was just so eye-opening. That happened just a few years after launching Fit to Be. And then, you know, so I dug into more of the research at that point. And you're cutting through nerves. You're cutting through muscles. And you're doing the same thing even if you're repairing the abdominal wall. You're, they slice down your linea alba 
roll the two sides together and whip stitch them, essentially. I know. You know, for all I you know. embroiderers out there. <laughs> but it's even that you talked about the C-section thing because this point interests me because the, there's varying, I suppose the research is conflicting in terms of that. You get some studies say mm -hmm. that C-section increases the risk for diastasis and some that say it doesn't. But uh, if I think clinically, it makes sense. If these ladies have their muscles cut through, they're a wee bit less functional and mobile afterwards, that's going to have an impact on the natural resolution of any normal separation that happened. So that could right. impact on, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. that could be, that could predispose them. I think it goes back to who does their surgery and the kind of treatment they get afterwards. If you get a C-section and you have a good surgeon and they give you good care advice for post-op, they say, hey, you know, 10 days, take it easy, but then ease into some, get, go get some physical therapy, wear a splint, you know, watch your posture, go for walks. Because I, when I, as I talk to all these women around the world and fit to be, those women are healing just as fast. Yeah. The ones that are, you know, okay, we, we got your baby out. We saved your life. Good luck. <laughs> not and they're not given any instructions yeah. and they're not given any support. Uh, they have a much harder time because now they're, and there's also the trauma aspect. If you've had an emergency cesarean and your baby's life was at risk or your life was at mm -hmm. risk, now you're also dealing with psychological, mental, emotional mm -hmm. recovery aspects. You're, you're grieving, you're recovering, mm -hmm. and that also plays a role in your posture, your rest, what you're eating. It's a circle. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree because I'm saying, and that's, that's just because we know too that the diastasis has to be considered as a biopsychosocial issue as well and not just a physical thing or a biopsychosocial, yes. Absolutely, yes. it affects body image and we know that through, and there's studies have demonstrated that there's a body image or there's a quality of life component attached to it. The other thing too is posture. You touch and posture automatically is usually affected. People <laughs> accommodate and compensate. <laughs> And we know that posture affects oh, yeah, affect body image. We know that if we're more slumped and we come into rooms and we hold ourselves more slumped, we, it's going to affect our body image and self-esteem negatively. That's been proven. Mm -hmm. We know that when we come in and we're more confident, it has a positive effect on how we feel. So this is all, that's how, there's so many dimensions to diastasis that I think it's just amazing, but I think it's so overlooked. And that's why I developed... Um, I developed a format for assessing diastasis so that I could help people work through and fitness professionals and physios work through mm -hmm. a logical way of assessing it so that they're considering more than just how many yeah. things mm -hmm. Right. Because it is so much more than that. Hey, I, I have a question for you. Yes. We've touched on the cosmetic aesthetic aspect of it. Have you noticed that among physiotherapist circles and even fitness professional circles um there's been a shift almost back toward saying oh especially in light of the recent bow study that i want to talk about um oh you know what it really is just cosmetic you really don't need to worry about it mm. if it's if it's this then then you know what it's just part go ahead and do all the things so what if your belly's bulging just accept it you're never going to totally bounce back. This is postpartum. And I, 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 I'm over here like, huh? what? 
Um, I haven't noticed that so much over here, and I'm interested actually to hear. I, I certainly notice that in the medical community, and I do notice one of my big bugbears is that because of the both study, in terms of physios, a lot of people are saying it's not linked to pelvic floor dysfunction, and I'm like, oh, you know, I find it really hard to separate the two, given that I'm a pelvic floor physiotherapist as well as a as as well as being diastasis. I yeah. know that. These women never exist with just one issue. There's always a pelvic no. component to it. And we know from a systematic review that happened in 2018, Hilladal, they found that there was no correlation between urinary incontinence and diastasis. However, there was a weak correlation between pelvic organ prolapse and diastasis. So we know that things are out there that are suggesting a link, including the surgical study I spoke about earlier. So they, the, sur the surgeons are finding that when they improve, they diastasis repairs, urinary incontinence wasn't proven. So that tells us automatically yeah. there has to be some link. So with yeah. both study, it's interesting. Okay. So we yeah, initially had Yeah. So if I start where we are, we initially had Spitznagel study, which uh, demonstrated that there was sixty six percent of women with diastasis had at least one or more support related pelvic floor dysfunction diagnosis. So it was like, yeah, there's a link. Diastasis, pelvic floor. Fast forward a few years. Bo created a great study in the sense that it was a randomized control trial. Or no, it wasn't. It was a longitudinal prospective study, and she followed people, and she it was quite high quality. But she demonstrated that there was no link, which was really kind of eye opening for a lot of physios and physical therapists and fitness professionals. However, mm -hmm. it was a cohort of women in their first pregnancy and after the first delivery and only up to one year postpartum. So it's very early to be making conclusions about that. Mm -hmm. I would speculate mm -hmm. that exposure to diastasis over a longer period would have more issues, especially given that they were first-time moms. So their pelvic floor and the pelvic organs were probably functioning well, held in a good position going into that mm -hmm. pregnancy. And so this is the only thing that may have changed other than their delivery, whatever mode of delivery they had. If they've had been an ongoing diastasis, it might take longer for the actual true implications of this to come to light. So I hope she's following that up for another, I suppose, publication in a few years. However, the yeah. other thing is that she considered prolapse in terms of grade two. If my memory serves me right, I'd be interested to see how many of those first-time moms went from having no prolapse to grade one prolapse. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, because there are different grades, um, and and within that first year postpartum, a lot of moms haven't returned to exercise yet. Um, yeah. They're still too busy. They're they're still not even sleeping yet. Um, they're, right. they're feeding the kids, and, and they're surviving, and and, yeah. and and they're barely making it. Um, it's pretty rare, even though there are some women who do re return to exercise too soon and too much. Um, in my experience, that's usually after a second or third pregnancy. They're like, okay, now I've had two babies and now my body's really falling apart. I got to go back to boot camp, um, which we don't advocate for that. We need to put your body back together. We need to start from the basics. We need to rebuild that foundation and then build on that foundation. Um, so like you said, and I was so glad to hear you and Michelle talk about this in an interview. And I want to link that interview in this podcast because it was so affirming to me because I was one of those people that the Bo study came out and I was like, what? This doesn't match yeah. anything that I have experienced or that I see in my clients 
my customers around the world. So I can't just say this is an American thing, but when you and Michelle discussed how well this was a study of women within one year postpartum after just their first baby, because I was fine after that. I mean, my abs went back to flat. I had no leaking after that first baby. I was fine. It was the second one that did me in. Okay. And I also noticed that I developed more of a pooch and did develop some leaking um, heading into my second pregnancy. And then my second pregnancy, I was way bigger. I was chasing a toddler. I wasn't as mindful of things. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Well, at least it took me two pregnancies to develop all these problems. You know, some of my girlfriends did develop them in their first pregnancy. So it, it would be so interesting if, if Bo were to continue to study those those women Absolutely. as they go through subsequent pregnancies because, and, and then with fit to be, we attract a lot of moms of many, meaning yes. a lot of my customers have more than three or four or five. I have several customers that have more than 10, um, lots of Catholic wow. and Mormon wow. families. Um, and that's, um, and we attract those, I believe, because they do want to get in shape. They want to do it gently. They want to do it in a family-friendly way. Um, and because they want to have more babies more comfortably with less damage. And so people come to fit to be between pregnancies nine and 10 and then go on to have three or four more. We, we have had that. <laughs> those right? So I, I salute those women. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, I've got two. I'm good. Um, so that's an empowering thing for the, for the families that do want to have lots of kids. Um, and that is what they wish to do. Um, I want to help them do that. Um, but, and they feel like they can't, it can be really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. What you said there's really key though, because that study was only first time moms. So that's not reflective or transferable to your cohort of so the women who come to you are multi-powered. So that doesn't, we can't, it's not transferable to the whole population. And that's the limitation of that study. But the difficulty arises with, with when it comes to pelvic dysfunction and diastasis, it's really hard to control all of the confounding variables. So then that's where studies become difficult to say what actually caused this once we start to enter into mm -hmm. more than one child, more than one thing going on. You know, it then leaves hard yeah. to say whether it was the fact that you had another pregnancy or whether it was any other issue going on alongside that. And that's where research is really difficult and not always reflective of what we're seeing in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what you said earlier, that it becomes about fear. Because research often yeah. is used to highlight a culprit so that people can point to something and say, well, yeah. just don't do that. And so then, then you have things like this used to say, well, just don't have a third child. Mm -hmm. And I know women who have, they're like, oh, I don't want to have more kids because it will just totally, and that's what the studies say, it'll destroy my body. Um, you, and you have elite fitness professionals out there that are vocally also saying, I'm not going to have kids because it will ruin my body. Mm -hmm. and you know, Jillian Michaels was one of those people. They're, um, they're setting God the example people are following. <laughs> well, it, but that, that, just, that just creates fear. If you've got an elite professional that doesn't believe she can put her body back together after she has a baby, what kind of message does that send? Well, part of the problem is, is that, that there's some truth to it without the proper preparation beforehand and care afterwards. It's mm -hmm. so they're and that's really what it is. Their own they're making it happen they're, they're bringing it to you know to life 
the fear to life by the behavior that they have. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I really to highlight there is I have so many ladies, I'm sure you're the same, um, that, that come to me, they ask for baby number five, and we're like, I had this diastasis after baby number one. I was going to have more children, so I just decided to wait. I'm like, no! I know. Well, and that's so easy to buy into yeah. as a woman, because we already are great at putting ourselves on the back burner. Yeah, I was literally taught, we are literally taught as girls, young girls, that we come last. Yes. No, I know. And, I know and that. that as moms, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself. And the women, the older women around me were always kind of joking behind their hand, never around men, but always around us little girls. Oh, he, he, you know, oh. And what, what did I say last week? We were talking about how there's signs. We make signs that make light of incontinence. Men don't make signs that make light of their issues. Uh, You don't see funny signs in store shops about ED. No. (laughs) And we need to talk more, we need to talk more about pelvic floor dysfunction and we need to, we need to make it less taboo. And that's what I love about your approach as well, because it's putting things out there and it's breaking that, it's bringing that onto the table and letting women know that they're not alone and that they can't speak about this and they shouldn't accept it as normal. And, um, but I think speaking about um, misinterpreting like research and how research can be used negatively. I was at a conference recently that had a, a, a survey you filled in to find out the age of your pelvic floor depending on different characteristics you put in. So I was like, well, this is okay, right, it's good. I was like, thankfully, I've had three normal deliveries and um, did a stitch or two, but thankfully, I've recovered well. I'm a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Yeah. I'd be annoyed if I didn't, but I recovered well, and I have a really good functioning pelvic floor. But I put my details into this um, form, this online form, how many children? Three. How many deliveries? Three normal deliveries. And anything it asked, I answered, I came out with a pelvic floor age 46. Thirty-three. Well, that's 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 kind of disconcerting. Yeah, and I know, but it didn't ask me the questions in terms of. So it did. It obviously used the research highlights. The more deliveries you have, the higher risk you are for you know pelvic floor dysfunction or different things. Yeah. But it 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 spun my information and gave me this negative output, but it didn't ask me anything to do with how is my pelvic floor performing. You know. Have I any yeah. issues? No. You know, it didn't take anything else into consideration other than, oh, well, having three vaginal deliveries increases your risk. So suddenly it just calculated. Uh, uh, I, I, what I would say was I got that. And if I didn't know what I knew, that's quite fear inducing for someone, for yeah. the general public. I would have been like, oh, my goodness, 46. I need to watch myself. You know. Yeah. Oh, I need to be more careful. I need to be more cautious. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I need to quit jumping. Right. I should quit totally. jumping, and then that feeds into the bone density issues. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's misinformation. That's information being used incorrectly to me. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. So. Yeah. What I wanted um, to ask was. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's not been interrupt. I was going to ask about um what your thoughts are in terms of, so we know what different research is out there, but what are your thoughts in terms of, there's an age-long debate going on in the research that does exist about whether we should use transverse abdominus activation or whether we should use rectus abdominus through the, because rectus abdominus narrows their interest distance. Is this what we want to do? 
or do we want to do transverse abdominis? So many studies say this widens the interesse distance. Well, I'm going to defer back to what Diane Lee discovered in her study, which is that when you activate the transverse abdominis and they're looking at it with ultrasound, the interrecti distance, so the distance between the two rectus muscles, the six-pack abs, does widen. However, the linea alba thickens. Mm -hmm. That's what that found. And when you activate the rectus abs, say like in a crunch or chin to chest motions, um, hunching postures, um, the distance comes together, but the linea alba fascia slackens and it distorts and it loses tension. Mm -hmm. And we also know from researchers like Tom Myers of Anatomy Train that to rebuild fascia, you need to stimulate that fascia. You need to provide it with good nutrition, good rest, and you need to stimulate it in ways that tell it what to do. And this goes back to age-old exercise principles of form follows function. So how you train a muscle is how that muscle ends up building. So if you're training a muscle in a way that causes the fascia to go slack, even though in that moment, in that crunch moment, it appears that the linea alba is more narrow and that the abs are closer together, um, we don't live there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the rectus abs are not functionally on all the time. Like when I'm just sitting here standing, it's not my rectus abs holding me up. It's my transverse abs. Right. They're acting like a Chinese finger trap. The, the little game where you put your fingers in the ends, I've referred to that many times. So you put your fingers in the ends and you pull and the Chinese finger trap gets narrower in the middle. That's how your transverse abdominus works. Right. And so you, if you were looking at your rectus abs in that moment, you think, oh, it's pulling them apart. But when the transverse abs activate, your waist is smaller overall. Mm -hmm. So maybe the rectus abs are tugging, but the reality is you're getting this hug of support around your midline that is overall reducing abdominal pressure. And yes, you could have the balloon analogy where you're squeezing the balloon in the middle. So we're not talking about, hey, I'm going to pull my abs in as absolutely well, far as I can go and hold them there because I that does create pressure. We're talking about just postural activation, gentle activation, gentle, gentle. I think part of the problem is that people think of um, this internal pieces like the elastic on their waistband. And if you stretch it, then it stays stretched if you keep stretching it, but it's not, it's organic material in your body that you're working. So you're, you're training mm -hmm. and working it. It's not just like something you're wearing out. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that it's easy to, it's easy to kind of look at it like that. And, and I want to kind of go back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. You guys touched on it a little bit, but I think, so what I'm kind of putting together from this interview and lots of them is that a lot of times the surgeons also are looking at this fascia and other things kind of like elastic as well. And they're just like, Oh, it's all stretched up. Let's put it together. And I think that um, <laughs> there, there's not enough of a connection to um, and not enough of a relationship between the surgeon community and the, the physical therapy community can you guys talk about how important what maybe why there's that disconnect and and what we should do about it and how important it is or maybe it's not i don't know what your what are your thoughts on that mm, good question 
Yeah. Well, as I said, I definitely think physiotherapists, fitness professionals, all of us need to step up and we need to highlight our role for even those who do undergo surgery because if for anything, we're extra prescription specialists. We need to be guiding mm-hmm. when or how long the recovery period is and grading that recovery and not just giving people an eight-week window to be back at CrossFit, which is ridiculous. So yeah. I think that we need to definitely start opening the channels of communication and shouting louder about what we are doing and the success stories we're having and doing research best, which we need to do. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> yeah. what I also think is that I think traditionally, diastasis, if we go back, was totally misunderstood and it wasn't considered as anything appropriate and women were considered as, you know, not as important. So we had the babies and rares and we could get on with it. Even though we had this gap in our midline, we could still get up and do our day-to-day tasks. It yeah. might more difficult, but we did it. And as women, we powered through and did it. So I think that it was totally under-recognized. And when it eventually started to be recognized, it was wrongly considered just cosmetic and then it became cosmetic surgery generally by history doesn't really need physical therapy if you think of some of the other cosmetic surgeries or more simple procedures that they just you go in you have your surgery you're done so I think it was misplaced in that in that regard and I think that maybe it's only now as things are coming out that we're starting to try and challenge that and change it I don't what's it like is it the same in the states with in terms of is it considered cosmetic by the surgeons and um, yeah it's very rare that you can get healthcare insurance to cover surgery for diastases because it is not seen as a medical issue there's a lot of fear of giving it medical terms because now that changes um, how we can approach it um, because in okay. the state if something's a medical issue I can't touch it so there's oh, this really, well, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm, where, mm-hmm. you know what, I, you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah <laughs> it, I it makes it very precarious. A lot of clinics are figuring out, and there are some new billing codes, which is sad, but the insurance companies rule, um, and our healthcare system is just really messed up. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I miss the way it used to be like 10 or 15 years ago. I thought that was actually fine. Um, however, there, we were still lacking a lot of coverage, but at least now there are billing codes for things like incontinence and low back pain. And so what clinics are doing now here is saying, well, we can't, we can't bill for treating diastases because that's supposed to be referred to cosmetic surgery, but we can, we can bill for treating incontinence, low back pain, constipation, um, and all the other symptoms on that tree of functional core weakness. And when we fix those things, the diastasis tends to resolve, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So okay. because yes. to I, fix yes. incontinence and to fix constipation, we need to address your potty posture. We need to mm-hmm. address um, your nutrition. We need to address how you're sitting and how you're standing and your strategies for squatting. And, and when we do those things, there's a beautiful overlap that happens. And I love that you talked about, I'm, I'm channeling my inner Michelle Lyons when I'm getting all <laughs> happy about foul, foul things. But um, I think that you cannot improve a diastasis or certainly one of the biggest things that will hold back your rehab with diastasis is that people are having either constipation or obstructive defecation, which I think a lot of them do have. 
because they can't get the effort or they can't get the proper effort and they strain and that causes more inward I suppose into out pressure from on the back. Yeah, I think that it pushes everything buzzes it out and stops their rehab or stops their recovery. So potty mm-hmm. positions are so important. Sorting out what you're eating, how you're emptying, your strategies, mm-hmm. your breathing, so important. Yeah, well and if you're constipated, then chances are you're also not absorbing nutrients correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then right. that affects your healing. So, yep. It's just there's so you, many things. You spoke to me earlier about um collagen shakes and this. I'm really interested to talk about this because I suppose the dietary components aren't my strong point and I'm really interested in what's out there. And I always know that even people like making like bone broth are quite nutritious postnatal mm-hmm. recovery. But in terms of the acids and collagen, what are your thoughts? Well, and they are just my own anecdotal thoughts. Um but I would love to figure out a way to research again, even anecdotally, because it'd be hard to control all the variables. But you know, take a group of 100 women and send them through an exercise and splinting program for their diastases, and then take a, another group of women and send them to the same program, but have them take collagen every day, mm-hmm. and just see what that outcome would be. And I would bet that we would see. Even maybe it might be slight, but I think we would see a statistical difference in the thickness of their fascia in the group that was taking collagen. Um, we might even see a little bit more narrowing of the gap. Uh, but again, how would you even begin to set something like that up and control all those things? Um, but that, like, I would love to do that. And the reason I would love to do that is because um, pr- protein feeds the rebuilding of muscles and fascia. Um, those little fascia snails that they show in those um, photography images that have been sped up like a thousand times by groups like Anatomy Train and, and Tom Myers, they're looking at these little um, fibroblasts that are laying down new matrix in your fascia, in your connective tissue. Those need protein to to lay down. That's RNA, DNA, RNA feeds, it's, I'm, I'm totally um, watering everything down, but without enough protein, we can't rebuild. And collagen is such a rich source of protein, and I like that it doesn't taste like anything because I really can't stand chocolate and vanilla flavors and stuff. It's just gross. I mean, I like chocolate, but chocolate shakes are usually nasty. So <laughs> let me tell you what I really think. Um, <laughs> so I like that, that collagen hydrosylate... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's tasteless. It can go in my coffee. It can go in my tea. It can go in in other shakes if I want to um, fruit smoothies, and nobody's going to complain. And you know, there's different types of it. Uh, there are vegetable sources. There are animal sources. Um, so it's just a really accessible type of protein. So it's like one tablespoon has six and a half grams of protein, and we know that the human body can really digest comfortably about six to thirteen. Was it six to thirteen grams? per hour, depending on your size, depending on other variables. So, you know, having a cup of coffee with a a tablespoon of collagen in it to get your morning going, it just really works for me. It doesn't give me the jitters as much. And I was told by my surgeon, I had neck surgery last year, and coming out of surgery, he's like, you have a lot of elastin. And I'm dopey and I'm all like, what? (laughs) What what do you mean? He's like, your muscles part like putty. He goes, you look strong and you look like you're tense, but you're not. He's like, under anesthesia, he goes, you have 
a lot. He's like, I don't know if it never left your system after you had kids. Um, he goes, but you need to take collagen. You need to take collagen every day to counteract that, to make sure that your joints are supported, that your muscles are strong. He goes, I think, yeah. And, and so I really, I had been it's, taking it's collagen. Cool. So I was like, I already take it. And he goes, said that actually. take more. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. but he was a great surgeon and had a really good post. He's like, make sure he prescribed physical therapy. He prescribed yeah. collagen. Yeah. He He's prescribed a rest. Unique guy, probably. He prescribed a, a bracing program that was not like necessarily 24 seven. He's like only I had this huge neck brace, only wear it when you're up and about. Um, That's cool. And then I want Very you to wean. I want you to wean off of it for the last two weeks. And I was like, oh, that's funny. That's exactly what we tell our core rehab mm -hmm. clients. You know, it's, yeah. we don't want you wearing this all the time for the rest of your life. We want you to wear it for a few weeks and then taper and be doing your exercises. And so he, when he said that, and again, I'd been taking collagen already. I, again, dug back into some more research and was looking at elastin versus collagen and how they play different roles. Elastin is a hormone that relaxes um, your, your joints, your ligaments, um, it's, and, and relaxin. So those two kind of go together. It's the elastic components in your muscles. Collagen is a protein that gets in there and strengthens and supports and, and builds those tendons and fascia and connective tissue. It's, it's a key part of your interstitium, that new organ that they have discovered just recently, which is this fluid-filled organ that's underneath and around and in, and it carries things to other things. Again, I'm watering it down, totally wow. not doing it justice. That's a good description. So but those are my thoughts. Well, you know, on that, you talked about, um, which is really interesting, and um, you talked about the, you know, just the natural makeup that you might have in your connective tissues, because they did a Wait, study, another, yeah, they did another 2018 study to look, which is the first one done on live people, to investigate the makeup of the Lini Alba and people with the aspis, and those without the aspis, and I can post the link to what that study is afterwards, because I can't remember off my head, but... They showed that those with diastasis had lower type 1 and type 3 uh, collagen levels in their, in their makeup, which meant that like type 3 collagen is your elastic. I did not even know about that study. <laughs> I sent you that study afterwards. It's really interesting because that brings me to think because yeah. my thoughts on that were afterwards, right, right. Does that mean people are genetically predisposed to diastasis? Mm. And is that why... So many percentage of people don't resolve naturally. Like if you just follow people, there's mm. a certain amount. There's a third of people roughly that don't resolve naturally after pregnancy. And um, and can we do anything about that? And I started thinking, mm -hmm. well, you know, I think we can. I think we can affect that tissue if we load it. But what if we can also affect it with what we're taking nutrition-wise? Like you're talking right. there. That's another thing. Well, and why not? I mean, if you can take vitamin D orally to supplement. The fact that you and I both live where we get very little of it, right. and this is reminding me because now that we're past the summer, I always kick in the supplements when, and it's the first official cloudy day of fall, so here we go. Um, and it, it, if we're going to say nothing you take orally can benefit your body, that's, that's, a, that's a load of poo because, <laughs> because hello, <laughs> what we eat is what feeds our body. So it makes total sense to me. And, and I have, I just got another collagen to, to sample um, by a company called WellPass that contains all four types, five, four, five types of collagen in it. 
because some collagen supplements only contain one or two types. Um, they have to get it from different sources. They have to go to a bone broth source, um, grass-fed beef source. They, they have to get it from different places and get all of that in the bucket to get all the types in there. So I'm curious. Um, I don't know yeah. really what to measure, but I'm always up to trying things, and more protein is always good because most humans are not getting enough protein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the other thing that comes down to is load, because I think that we have to appropriately load. And I sometimes worry that within the axis, you have two extremes. People either jump into boot camp and do too high of load, or they go too yeah. cautious. They go and they lie on the back, and all they do is Pilates type, low level exercise. Right. Mm -hmm. And they need to get functional. These women are lifting babies. They're bending down the cot. They're yeah. doing laundry. We need to train women to be strong. So I'm huge into giving people the maximum load and the strategies to increase that load, which is all what you're right. all about. <laughs> right. So, but even in what um, I do, it's so hard to get people to move forward. And I, you know, I have these basic routines. I'm fit to be. We have the foundational five. And, and there's, tons of verbiage in those videos and in the wording around those videos on the pages that's like okay do these one or two times and then move on mm -hmm. um and and do them go through them um if you get stuck though try to move forward because sometimes moving forward is what helps you um and there's going to be other cues and other videos and people just get so nervous um and I know that I am not feeding into that fear factor because I am so careful to use so much empowering language and let's, you know, you can do this. And, and like you said, get them doing as much as they can for where they are. Um, because diastasis shouldn't be debilitating. Um, it is something that should shift what we're doing. Um, but it's not something that should keep us flat on our backs. Right. It's in fact the opposite right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So a couple more thoughts I have on that um, is that as people progress, they do get stronger. And like, like Grania, you just mentioned in terms of load, um, you know, people were leery of the transverse abdominus activation because it was, it was right. loading. It loads the tissues. I just recently filmed, we haven't released it yet, but it's, um, Oh, what's it called, Chris? It was like transverse. Oh, it's like a transverse yoga routine um, where, please face the name of it. But it's like we get into a position and then take an inhale, exhale, five gentle 20% pulses. And then breathe and then get into a different position. Get into good alignment, inhale, exhale, five gentle pulses. And going through that whole routine, I think it ended up being like 15 minutes long. And I had practiced that and played with it for a number of months just to see, okay, can I manage pressure? What cues in my mind help me manage pressure? Because we don't want to be like really punching the stomach with those pulses. We want to keep it gentle, but we want to, again, load the body. And it almost creates a double load. You get into a position and that's a load. And then you activate the transverse and that's load as well. Um, and for a while, I kind of shied away from really focusing on the transverse because I really wanted to be as natural as possible. I wanted the transverse activation to happen naturally with the exhale as much as possible. 
So I've kind of gone back and forth on that over the years, and you can see that in my videos. And it's not that either way is right or wrong. There's so many ways to activate the core, right? Yes, and true, some people, we want that natural activation completely, but so often I see postnatal that women have lost that natural and they nearly bypass yeah. that transverse because they go into more global gripping patterns. I mm -hmm. use ultrasound in my clinical practice, so I'm fortunate enough to see exactly what's happening at the lateral abdominal wall mm -hmm. muscles, and the amount of women who you cue, and they, they tell you, yeah, no, I am engaging, as you, as you said, but when you look at it, nothing's happening at transverses and that takes me back to even saying about um, the importance of considering what's going on pelvic floor wise because we always want these ladies to be able to get a co-contraction but how mm -hmm. do we know if they're getting a co-contraction if we don't know what's going on pelvic floor we know that many women think they're doing pelvic floor and are not so yeah that's why i think we have to consider it as as professionals you know mm-hmm yeah, yeah. And, and we need women to get into where they can see somebody like you because I cannot reach through a screen and that is the one big setback with fit to be is and I'm always referring out because of this reason mm -hmm. I can't feel you and touch you and assess you I can do a lot even through a consult but even yep. that is not I, it's two-dimensional mm -hmm. I, I can't really see what's going on so yeah. having somebody that can help you is so crucial I had one gal who was doing everything right She'd been a member of Fit2Be for years, um, had a, a closed her diastasis, then had a very traumatic pregnancy um, and dealt with pups, uh, that overall rash you can get when um, the urethra, what does that stand for? Pupural, polypupural urethra, something. I'm totally murdering the name of it right now, but um, the, the, not the urine in your body, but your body is not managing things and you get a big rash basically. And so horrible pain and discomfort. And then after that could not get her diastasis closed, distended stomach, three, four finger diastases. Um, and she's, she's a doctor herself. And so this was really frustrating to her. She was getting nutrition, getting all the things. Finally, got her in to see somebody, which was hard because she had to drive two hours to find somebody for where she lived, okay? It turned out that her um, back muscles were so tight and her oblique so gripping. So probably all this time she's thinking she's activating her transverse, but it's really she's been over-gripping her obliques. They did a bunch of release work in her lower back and in her obliques, and boom. Like suddenly her gap was down a finger width just mm -hmm. in one appointment, gave her some things to go home with because people can think they're doing it correctly and they can, you know, even my stuff, they can go through all of it. But until they meet with somebody one-on-one -on -one who can say, oh, well, there's this one little, there, you need this thing. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. And then once you teach them it, once they have it and they have that body awareness of the correct way to do it then that's when they really triumph with the likes of whatever exercise program they're doing. And then they know when they, they have much more ownership of doing it the correct way as they continue on. So that's, that's, I'm all about empowering women too and teaching them how to figure out themselves how they're doing it right so that you shouldn't always have to rely on someone else to tell you. It's teaching the person mm -hmm. how to evaluate themselves and I think that's key. And then that teaches them how to look after themselves in future pregnancies and afterwards and when to know when to get help. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing I was going to say to you, um, are you familiar at all with low-pressure fitness, or do you know much about it? Hypopressive? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Who well, I think they have a place. I people have asked me, "Hey Beth, are you going to ever make a video?" And I'm like, "Nope. I will refer you to people who do low pressure fitness. I'll refer you to that gal." Um, I don't think there's a need to reinvent the wheel, and it, it's actually quite technical. I mean, I can pull off a general hypopressive, but I don't. But cue it. For one thing, trying to cue a hypopressive while you're doing a hypopressive would be problematic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I do so think they have a place. Yeah. yeah, I do think they have a place. I am not trained in them to be able to teach them, but I have practiced them. I'm the same as you. So I've come across them. I've practiced them. I've been somewhat intrigued because a lot of times on my social media, things flash up and hypopressives do everything. They save the world in, in so many ways. Yeah. When you look for research, it's not there, as it's not there with a lot of things. So that doesn't put me off. But I was just quite like, how can it make such big claims if there's not huge bodies of research about it? But I can do the breathing and the apnea, and I can see the concept of how it could help with pelvic floor dysfunction, how it can kind of start to counteract all those things we do in the, with the abscesses every day, which is putting pressure on the connective tissue. You're then essentially doing the opposite. But um, that's what I'm going to hopefully, I'm not trained in hypopressives and I'm not going to become a trainer. I'm more interested in how they can play a role. But I'm going to hopefully have a research study this time next year comparing conventional rehab, so the types of things I do, against a hypopressive arm, which I think will be really interesting. But oh, where I'm really worried about is how do I reflect what I do in a research arm because I I individualize my rehab to everyone. So someone comes in and I look at the person in front of me and I might do slightly different things. Yeah. So in a yeah. research study, you can't do that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's where the difficulties come. So what, how do I reflect what I do or what physios do? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I, feel, I feel the same way. Um, and and we'll, we'll wrap up with this. But, like, people will write in if it's be and say, hey, I found out about you. And people say it's helped with their diastasis, but where's your program? And, and I really don't like that question because I'm, I'm not a program. I've never claimed to be a program. We have these courses that bundle our workouts together, um, you know, we, more like a re-entry to fitness. And I'm like, just go work out. Just start moving. Yeah. And if something's yeah. not working right, go get PT. <laughs> yeah. Because no, I, I don't like programs. No, I agree. I don't like programs. I think there's no one-size-fits-all. That's right. the problem. Is people want a one-size-fits-all? And you know, there's 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 a one size that fits you know sixty percent of the people, and that's not well, yeah. But the problem yeah. is if you go down that path, so you might want to try that and say, hey, well, let's at least get six out of ten. But the problem is, is that for the other forty percent, it it's really a bad experience for them. Not that it's damaging, but it's discouraging. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I feel like it's better to say everything inside of our platform at Fit to Be is safe. Go do it. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of resources to learn. Take some time and read it. And if you're mm -hmm. not willing to go do it and read it, then you probably shouldn't be here anyway because you're not ready to invest, <laughs> right? So it's, you, you have yeah. to invest some to actually have an impact in your health that's positive. And we live in this mm -hmm. culture, this Western culture, where it's like, okay, but is there a pill that I can just take and just like, you know, Quick even, even twice a day, I'll do it twice a day if I have to. It's yeah. like, no, there's no, pill. Yeah. you actually have to invest. And, um, mm -hmm. and the investment actually isn't that bad. 
it's like it can be enjoyable, but you do have to do it. And um, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, you can't just sign up and then not do it. <laughs> my little no, yeah, you know. But oh. but anyway, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for um, the time and the and, and everything. A uh, couple yeah. quick questions. So first of all, if you're listening okay. to this, um, we'll, we'll stick a bunch of the information. There's so much information we talked about. We'll put a bunch of that in the into the show notes. Um, <laughs> but if there's more stuff and they want to find you, where can they find you? Of course, we'll put this in the show notes as well. But website, social media, where are you at? Okay. So um, my uh, physiotherapy clinic is called Absolute Physio. So you can get me at www.absolute.physio. And that's it. There's no .com or anything. I've got my own domain name. But um, you, I'm also on social media um, uh, under Absolute Physio. So at Absolute.Physio. And um, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, I'm mm-hmm. at Absolute And I also come under the alias of the Physio. So you can find me with that as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be found. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Last question. We, we try to ask everyone as long as we remember, uh, what is your favorite <laughs> exercise right now in your life that you like doing? Favorite exercise. I'm a huge fan of squats. I'm not going to lie to you. I think squats are so functional and this takes me back to my pelvic health bias because we squat in the toilet and we have to get up and down from it. Right. I like to use a squat yep. potty. So I'm going to commit and I'm just going to say squats Squat all the way. Squats are one of the biggest things that puts older age people off their feet and into homes because they can no longer get up and down themselves, get off the mm-hmm. toilet themselves. So right. squat. Let let let's save the world and subscribe more squats. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Well, Beth, Beth, you Amen. right up Beth's alley there. She and she, we have on fit to be a, a bunch of workouts and focus on, on squats. So that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for spending yeah, time with yeah. us today. Yes, thank you. Um, It's an honor. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you for getting me. I'm fangirling here, so thank you for getting me on. (laughs) (laughs) It's good times. And we'll get our heads together on that research. Definitely. Awesome. All right, thank you. All right, have a great day. Bye. Bye. Well, thanks for listening to all that. If you liked it, you should subscribe. So that good Lord Willen and the Creek don't rise, you receive all our new episodes we do our best to put out each week. And of course, please follow us on Twitter at fit to be on Instagram at fit to be studio and on Facebook via fit to be tummy safe fitness. Want to work out with me, Beth? You can do that over at fit to be.com. See you there.